so a friend of mine from Old Harbor a couple of years ago started his own fishing charter business. And he was telling me about how he uh, carried out his marketing to try to recruit, to try to find clients. And one of the things he did was to buy a list of names, of emails, maybe even phone numbers of, of people to, uh, um, to send his you know, advertisement to for his charter company. The thing with charter business in Alaska is you probably don't want to advertise. You probably don't want to spend your marketing budget advertising to like college students in Florida working at Taco Bell, right? You want it targeted. So he was targeting people in the Pacific Northwest who made enough money to come up and go fishing with him in Alaska. Now, back in Nebraska, when we're there for the summer, and we're not going to be this summer, so I don't have the pleasure of hearing this, but there's a Christian radio station, and they run, they've been running this spot for years, this little commercial, and that's from some kind of marketing company that will sell you these lists of names and emails so that businesses can buy this list and reach out you know, to the right people for their service. And this makes sense, right? You don't want to waste your budget reaching people that um, aren't going to be interested in the product or the service you're providing. Well, this radio spot in Nebraska was trying to sell um, not a list of like doctors and lawyers and such, but um, according to the sovereign voice on the radio, conservative evangelicals. Because according to the commercial, conservative evangelicals tend to make more money and they're a good credit risk. They have higher credit scores than other people. They pay their debts on time, things like that. If you're going to loan someone money, Christians, according to this commercial, are a safe bet. Now, long before radio commercials, long before Christians had higher credit ratings than the average U.S. citizen, I suppose. Christians were leaders in things like medicine and education and the arts and even in science to an extent. Christians built hospitals and universities and they created beautiful music and paintings and sculptures. Even going back to the first couple of centuries of the church, followers of Jesus had a reputation for taking care of the poor, taking care of the widows, taking care of discarded children. In fact, when Jesus or his followers healed someone, you can think of that healing in a couple of ways. And one of the ways is as a service to the community, right? Now that individual no longer has to beg for money. He or she can work, can carry their own weight, as it were. So if followers of Jesus living gospel-shaped lives of service are so wonderful, if they're such good citizens, if they're even good credit risks, why is so much of our journey through Acts filled with opposition, rejection, and even persecution? Now, obviously, I've given a very edited picture of things. The history of the church is far from how we might want to frame it. Yet even before there really was much of a history of the church, even before there was a church that had been around long enough to wound many of its followers in many different ways, the preaching of the gospel faced opposition, rejection, and provoked persecution. And there's no one group of people who are innocent 
of this reaction. No one's off the hook. So just as Paul preached to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles, the opposition came from the Jews first and then from the Gentiles. All opposed it. All different kinds of people opposed it. So we're going to read Acts 14 this morning, and I believe that in this chapter, which consists of kind of three movements, I believe that Luke wants us to understand not just the fact of opposition and rejection and persecution. We've talked about that recently. But he wants us to understand why the gospel divides. It divides families at times. It divides communities here in chapter 14. He wants us to see why King Jesus polarizes people and how the king's followers should respond. So read along with me. The same thing happened in Iconium when Paul and Barnabas went into the Jewish synagogue. It spoke in such a way that a large group of both Jews and Gentiles believed. But the Jews who refused to believe stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they stayed there for a considerable time, speaking out courageously for the Lord, who testified to the message of his grace, granting miraculous signs and wonders to be performed through their hands. But the population of the city was divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When both the Gentiles and the Jews, together with their rulers, made an attempt to mistreat them and stone them, Paul and Barnabas learned about it and fled to the Lyconian cities of Lystra and Derbe and the surrounding region. There they continued to proclaim the good news. Verse 8. In Lystra said a man who could not use his feet, lame from birth, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he was speaking. When Paul stared intently at him and saw he had faith to be healed, he said with a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And the man leaped up and began walking. So when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. They began to call Barnabas Zeus and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of the temple of Zeus, located just outside the city, brought bulls and garlands to the city gates. He and the crowds wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard about it, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Men, why are you doing these things? We too are men with human natures just like you. We are proclaiming the good news to you so that you should turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and everything that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to go their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without a witness by doing good, by giving you rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying you with food and your hearts with joy. Even by saying these things, they scarcely persuaded the crowds not to offer sacrifice to them. Verse 10, but Jews came, sorry, verse 19, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and after winning the crowds over, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, presuming him to be dead. But after the disciples had surrounded him, he got up and went back into the city. On the next day, he left with Barnabas 
for Derby. Verse 21. After they had proclaimed the good news in that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch. They strengthened the souls of the disciples and encouraged them to continue in the faith, saying, We must enter the kingdom of God through many persecutions. When they had appointed elders for them in the various churches with prayer and fasting, they entrusted them to the protection of the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came into Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there they sailed back to Antioch, for they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had now completed. When they arrived and gathered the church together, they reported all the things God had done with them and that he had opened a door of faith for the Gentiles. So they spent considerable time with the disciples. Pray with me, please. Father, we thank you as we do every week for the gracious gift of your word, uh, that what you have revealed to us through your servants are things that we would never come up with if left on our own. It is a gift of grace, but it's also a very sacred responsibility that we understand it and that we obey it. And there's much blessing if we do. We pray you'd be gracious with us this morning as we seek to do that very thing, as we seek to understand, to see how we might obey, that we would be your faithful servants, pointing people to Jesus wherever we go. Amen. In the first movement of this chapter, we find Paul and Barnabas in Iconium doing the same thing they did in Pisidian Antioch, preaching first in a synagogue to a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. We don't get the context of the preaching here. We don't get the content of the preaching here. Luke wants us to focus on the response, on the reaction, but we can assume that it was probably similar to his previous message, that Jesus is Lord and King. Luke tells us right away that a large number of Jews and Gentiles believed. But unbelieving Jews stirred up unbelieving Gentiles against Paul and Barnabas. But Paul and Barnabas continue speaking courageously for the Lord. Now look carefully at verse 3. Paul and Barnabas speak courageously for the Lord, and it's the Lord who testifies to their message of grace. And he backs up, the Lord backs up the message by granting miraculous signs and wonders. And verse 4 here is key. But the population of the city was divided. Remember that. Now, where are we? Many Jews and Gentiles have believed the message and are now united by virtue uh, of the indwelling of the same Holy Spirit. Luke has been keen to point out in Acts that the same Holy Spirit that's poured out on the Jews in Acts 2 is also poured out on the Gentiles. So we have Jews and Gentiles united in the same Holy Spirit by believing in King Jesus. They are united because they pledged their allegiance to this king. At the same time, unbelieving Jews and Gentiles are also united 
against Paul and Barnabas. Do you see the irony here? Maybe it's as the old adage goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. We'll talk a little bit about a little bit more about that later. Paul and Barnabas though have stayed in spite of this opposition. They speak courageously and the Lord himself has been at work. But now it's time to move on. They learn of the plan of this unholy union of Jews and Gentiles to stone them, to harm them. So they flee to Derby and to Lystra. In Lystra, now, the first time, we do not see them working through a synagogue. So this message to the people of Lystra seems to be the first message we have in Acts to a strictly Gentile audience that has no connection to the synagogue. Paul and Barnabas come across a man who has never walked, we're told. He's been lame lame from birth. And while listening to Paul's preaching, Paul sees him and understands that he has faith to be healed. Paul tells him loudly, stand up right on your feet. And the lame man does. He not only stands, but he leaps and he walks. I picture Cheryl and her hip replacement here. (laughs) I don't know that she leapt right away. But uh, what a quick kind of recovery she seems to have made. So the man is healed. He leaps and he walks and the crowd responds. The city is not divided. This city is confused. Okay. Here's some background on what's going on. There was a well-known local legend that years ago, the gods Zeus and Hermes had appeared in human form in their region. They appeared kind of as like homeless wanderers, knocking on doors, looking for hospitality. And they went door by door through the region and were rejected by every home except of an elderly couple. When the elderly couple welcomed Zeus and Hermes in, the gods revealed who they really were. They destroyed all the homes that had rejected them and turned the elderly couple's home into a temple. So when the citizens of Lystra witness this healing, Paul commands the man to stand, and the man does. When they witness this, their minds go immediately to this legend about Zeus and Hermes. But the problem here is that they're expressing this belief And what they plan to do in response to identifying Paul and Barnabas as Zeus and Hermes in their own local language, a language that Paul and Barnabas would not have understood. That's why there's an apparent delay in Paul and Barnabas sort of rejecting to this response or objecting to this response. The people are planning a parade and a sacrifice to these two gods in human form. But once Paul and Barnabas finally figure out what's going on, they tear their clothes, which is what Jews did in the presence of blasphemy. And they plead with the people to believe that they are only men. Now, remember uh, in chapter 13, I think it was, Herod was praised as a god. But he didn't tear his clothes and correct anyone. He accepted that praise and he died. But Paul and Barnabas attempt to correct the people. They attempt to preach to them, to tell them about their God. Not only are they not Zeus and Hermes, but they tell the people to turn from such worthless things, such useless idols. 
They then persuade the people or try to persuade them that the one true God is the creator of everything and that he has given evidence of his grace even to those who have turned from him. Luke tells us that Paul and Barnabas were just barely able to convince the people in Lystra that they were just that they were just men created by their good God. And all seems okay until Jews arrive from Antioch and Iconium. The same Jews that had issues with Paul and Barnabas there have now traveled and are stirring up the people against Paul and Barnabas. And this time it's not avoided. Paul is stoned, dragged out of the city and left for dead. But the believers in Lystra encircle Paul and Paul gets up and returns to the very city that drug him out to leave him for dead. Now, is this a miracle or not? Was Paul dead? Did the believers somehow raise him to life? Was he just unconscious? And we don't know. Doesn't seem to be Luke's point. So I don't want to say too much about that. We just don't know. We don't know what was going on exactly. The final movement of this story presents Paul and Barnabas retracing, retracing their travels back through Asia Minor and all the way to their starting point, Antioch and Syria. And while they pass through these cities, they strengthen and they encourage the people there, the believers there. They also appoint elders in the churches there. And they make two key statements along the way. In verse 27, by way of encouraging and strengthening these new believers, they tell those who have witnessed both both the grace and the power of God in the preaching of the gospel, as well as the divisive nature of the gospel, they tell them we must enter the kingdom of God through many persecutions. The second key statement occurs when Paul and Barnabas arrive back in Antioch and Syria, where they started, and report back to the ones who had commissioned them for this mission. They report all the things that God had done with them, and that God had opened the door of faith for the Gentiles. I stated at the beginning that I believe Luke wants us to see beyond the fact of opposition to the gospel, to look at the why. Why is the good news received as good news by many, but as bad news, or maybe even false news, by many more? Why does the gospel... Divide a city? Why would a message of peace and reconciliation with God and with one another be opposed or rejected by anyone? Once we answer that question, we'll be able to connect Acts 14 to Port Lyons 2020. And the bridge that will connect us is this disruptive nature of the gospel on civil religion. Civil religion is simply the implicit set of beliefs and values among a people. Civil religion is expressed through public rituals, symbols, and ceremonies on sacred days and at sacred places. It is often, if not always, a means by which the few in power borrow from the faith of the masses as a way of making their practices and policies easier to swallow. It usually reflects, at least in terminology, the religion of the majority of the population. 
though it always excises the offensive and the demanding parts. Civil religion is a way for the few to win favor with the many by wrapping what they have done, are doing, and will do in religious language as if God or the gods of the religion of the masses were on their side. So when Paul and Barnabas visit these cities on their journeys, they battle a two-headed civil religion often. Jesus himself ministered for three years in Roman-occupied Israel, and many of these cities that Paul and Barnabas visit have a significant Jewish population. Now, to the credit of the Jews, they resisted with some success the temptation to worship the gods of their cities but they still had a civil religion of their own. You can see this portrayed most clearly in the response of the Jewish leadership to Jesus and also to the apostles in Acts. To Jesus, their anger was directed at his apparent lack of concern for things like Sabbath-keeping and staying away from the unclean. Jesus instead displays mercy and compassion and seems to value the lives that the Jewish civil religion wants to avoid. To the apostles and their ministry in Acts, the anger of the Jews seems to be directed toward the claim of Jesus' resurrection and to the inclusion of the Gentiles. Now, their faith, the Jewish faith, should have prepared them for this mission to include Gentiles in the people of God. But their civil religion constructed walls and maintained borders. We do see Gentiles who fear God, and even some who perhaps have converted, but this was something the Jews could control, ultimately through the requirement of circumcision, an issue that we'll dig into next week in Acts 15. When Peter and Paul preach, and the Spirit comes down on everyone who believes, Jews and Gentiles in the same way, the unbelieving Jews realize that their power to control who is in and who is out is at risk. So they oppose the teaching and the preaching and the person of Paul and of Barnabas. And not only do they oppose it, they raise up others to oppose it as well. I pointed out the irony earlier. They persecute the church because it unites Jews and Gentiles, but they work with the Gentiles to facilitate that persecution. Now for the Gentiles, the preaching of the gospel threatened the peace that Rome had achieved. They certainly had room for another God, right, among their many, but the gospel wasn't offering just another God among many. When Gentiles believed the gospel of the apostles and when they pledged their allegiance to Jesus as Lord, they were also proclaiming that Caesar is not. Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not. Rome had created a very pervasive layering of society as well. What layer you were in determined where you fit and limited your future. And the layer you were in, what level you were at, was determined by your birth. For example, slaves didn't eat at the table of the free. A man's wife was his property. The father of a child could decide whether an infant should be kept and raised as a family member or left to be exposed and to die. And it was often the sex of that child that was the deciding factor. 
and ultimately declaring that Caesar was Lord was a continual reminder of where and what kind of power held things together. The gospel disrupted all of this. In home churches, the believing poor would share a meal, a meal with the believing rich. Believing slaves would eat at the table of the believing free. Men would share a meal with women. This was an offense and a threat to the civil religion. Believers declared and believed that Jesus was Lord, so much so that the charge against Christians was often that they were atheists because they refused to acknowledge Caesar as Lord. So when we consider what we've seen in Acts 14, we really see all of this. The anger of the unbelieving Jews stirring up the anger of the unbelieving Gentiles to persecute those who are bringing a message of peace and of reconciliation. In Iconium, the rejection of the gospel takes the form of opposition and persecution. In Lystra, however, the gospel is still opposed, but initially it's opposed by its acceptance. Here's what I mean. When the people witnessed this man crippled from birth, leaping and running because Paul healed him by telling him to stand up, they draw a very faulty conclusion about Paul and Barnabas, that they are gods in human form. Civil religion tries to embrace Paul and Barnabas because of the power and because of the influence they see in them. Yet the kingdom of God is not about this kind of power. It's not about power and influence of civil religion. What we must understand is that a superficial, a superficial cultural acceptance of the gospel is really just another form of its rejection. Now, after a while, once Paul and Barnabas are scarcely able to persuade these men not to sacrifice to them, that acceptance turns to opposition. When Jews from these previous cities of Paul and Barnabas' travels arrive in Lystra and stir up the Gentiles against them, Paul is stoned and he's left for dead. And that is typical of how civil religions deal with their challengers by violence or by the threat of violence. Literal stoning or sometimes other forms of stoning that may not leave physical injuries, but nonetheless are forms of violent opposition. So how do followers of Jesus respond when the gospel confronts civil religion? Acts 14 tells us pretty directly there's a time to continue to speak courageously, as Paul and Barnabas do. There's also a time to move on. And the Holy Spirit will guide us in both. In addition to speaking courageously, we must also be taking on the task of strengthening and encouraging the church. An essential part of this strengthening and encouraging of the church in Acts 14 is to teach them as Paul does, the understanding that this opposition, this rejection, and even this persecution are to be expected. I mean, it's one of the strangest things in the world. If you want to strengthen and encourage someone, tell them the kingdom of God must be entered through many persecutions. 
That's not how we typically strengthen or encourage someone today. That message won't be a bestseller in the Christian bookstore, but that is how Paul strengthened and encouraged his churches, is by telling them that this kind of persecution, when the gospel of Jesus Christ confronts the civil religion, is to be expected. So we continue to speak. We strengthen and encourage the church. And then finally, and I love this, I love the last movement of of this passage, we see that even in the most dangerous places, we see the way in which God is opening doors of faith for all to believe in King Jesus. So when Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch and Syria to give a report about their mission to the ones who commissioned them, I can't help but think of the story of the 12 spies in Joshua chapter or Numbers chapter 13. When Moses sent them to scout out the promised land, right? 10 of them only see the giants, 10 of them only see the danger and the risks and the opposition, but Caleb and Joshua, Caleb and Joshua see the promise. Paul and Barnabas are like Caleb and Joshua. They directly experienced opposition and persecution everywhere they went on this missionary journey. But when they give their report, it's all about what God had done and how he had opened doors of faith, even to the Gentiles. I think we need a strong dose of this perspective. Because even where there is opposition and confrontation, there is also conversation and communication. Even where there is violence and persecution, there is opportunity for faithfulness, for endurance, even for forgiveness, for compassion, and ultimately for reconciliation. I'm not calling us to some kind of naive or ignorant optimism about things. But rather, I'm calling us to the way of the cross. The way of the cross, where suffering precedes glory, where death precedes resurrection. Now, do we have a civil religion? And if we do, what form does it take? Now, some would argue that even atheistic countries, nations, have a form of civil religion religion as well. I would tend to agree with that. We have our own, and it's a very complicated and it's quite a sensitive issue in some respects. While some of us may lament what we see as the erosion of Christian values in the United States, we remain a culture nonetheless bathed in Christian vocabulary and terminology. Now, I've warned us before about the danger of using Christian as an adjective. We generally use that term as an adjective to mean that something is safe and clean and family-friendly. But those Christian things often look nothing like and have nothing to do with King Jesus, the one who suffered not only in our place, but as our example. All but four presidents, all but four presidents in the history of the United States have placed their left hand on the Bible while raising their right hand in their swearing-in ceremony. Yet many of them have in practice, 
and in policy, both publicly and privately, conducted themselves in a manner utterly inconsistent with the story the Bible tells. This is civil religion. I read a book this week where the author pointed out, and I thought this was brilliant, wish I had thought about it. He pointed out the desire of many American Christians to keep the Ten Commandments displayed in public places, in courtrooms and outside courthouses and maybe even in schools. But he said no one wants the Sermon on the Mount displayed. Think about that for a moment. Now, the Ten Commandments are in no way inconsistent with the Sermon on the Mount. They in no way contradict each other. In fact, Jesus uses some of the Ten Commandments as a starting point to get his followers to understand that he is doing something even much deeper than what the Ten Commandments were intended to do. Think about his teaching about adultery and murder, for example. Right? It's real easy to check those off as the Ten Commandments. Yep, never done that, never done that. When Jesus turns it into lust and anger... How many of us could check those off? But what would it look like if we used as a banner in a public place in America things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the persecuted. And then blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. I don't even begin to know how that would work in a public place, in a courtroom, or outside a Capitol building. We, as do all nations, live with a civil religion, and ours is bathed in biblical and even Christian terminology. So the question is, how do we tell the difference? And I would say it's simple, but it's not easy. We start by ignoring the language and comparing it to Jesus. Ignore the language, ignore the terminology, and compare it to Jesus, whatever it is whether it's practice or policy. We get excited when we hear politicians use the language of the Bible. In fact, recent presidents have been fond of phrases like these, a city on a hill, the world's one and only hope, and the savior of the world. But none of this is used about church or about Jesus. This is civil religion. And you become a follower of your civil religion by birth, generally. You become a Christian by rebirth. You become faithful to your civil religion by being immersed in a culture of that religion, of that civil religion. But you become faithful to King Jesus by being filled with the Holy Spirit, something that civil religion cannot promise, cannot accomplish. So do not despair when the gospel confronts even a Christian culture. Speak courageously 
Be strengthened and be encouraged as you understand that this confrontation is necessary. And ultimately look to see where God is at work. And even in the midst of opposition, of persecution, of rejection, even of violence against followers of Jesus Christ because of his name and because of their faithful preaching of his story, Look at how God is opening doors to the faith, to faith in King Jesus, even in some of the least expected places. That must be our response to this confrontation of the gospel with civil religion, to the divisive nature of the gospel. It's not a sign that America is worse than it was before or that any nation is worse than it was before. It's how it has always been and always will be until he returns. Would you pray with me? Father, we live in confusing times, really. Uh, There's a lot going on in the world, and as much as going on in the world, there are almost exponentially more explanations and interpretations of what is going on in the world. And it can be confusing for us, even as your followers, even as as those who have pledged their allegiance to King Jesus, to, to try to figure it out and to make sense of things and to live at peace with our brothers and our sisters and our neighbors and even our enemies. Lord, I pray that you'd be gracious with us that even while we might have different opinions and interpretations of what's going on in the world, that we would understand that only in the person of your Son do we find hope. That only in the work that he did for us and in our place on the cross and rising from the grave do we have resurrection promised to us as well. Do we have not only resurrection, but also reconciliation with you and with one another? Lord, I pray that we would, that your followers would learn to treat each other, to treat their neighbors gently and humbly as we approach these issues, looking for opportunities to love and to serve Lord, and even when our culture seems to be increasing in opposition and rejection of the things you care about and of the things you died for, help us to speak courageously. Help us to be strengthened and encouraged and not surprised by that response. And ultimately, Father, let us see where you are at work, even in the midst of this opposition and rejection, even in the persecution, because you are still and have always been opening doors of faith so that in the end there will be saints from every nation, every people, every tribe, and every language all together giving glory to the Lamb who was slain for us. Thank you that even when we're not faithful, 
that even when we get it wrong, that you are gracious and that you are always faithful. And on that we can depend. We ask this through the name of the one who was ultimately the faithful one, Jesus, your son. Amen.